Romans 3.21 But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of his atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thanks, Meredith, and good morning, everyone. My name is Carl. I'm the pastor of the church here at Trinity Church Unley. Thanks for being with us here this morning. We are... Three weeks into what I've described as a trek up Mount Lofty as we together work our way through the book of Romans. Um, And I hope uh, last week you were able to come away if you were here with us reflecting on our own position before God and our need for Jesus. Today we arrive at a great vista. I've been talking about those vistas. Today we get there. I want to start though by um, introducing you to these. You've probably seen them before. You might know of them. These are Rubik's Cubes. These are Cameron Cowie's Rubik's Cubes. I wonder if you like solving puzzles. Uh, You can see Cameron has solved this one. Um, I'm going to mess it up. In about um, a few seconds, I can make a mess of this Rubik's Cube. You know, a guy called Felix Zemdigs, he can solve these in 4.2 seconds. He can just, I don't know, twiddle his fingers and the Rubik's Cube is fixed. I can make a mess of it in 4.2 seconds. takes me 4.2 years to solve them. I'm going to leave them there for you. Do you like solving problems? Are you a problem solver? For me, um, I love solving engineering problems, how to build that or how to fix it. But I wonder, are you a problem solver? I wonder if it's Sudoku that you're interested in, or maybe it's completing that thousand-piece puzzle when you go away on holidays. If you're a problem solver, then you might have a soft spot for this guy I've got on the screen behind me. His name is Sir Andrew Wiles. Probably never heard of him. But in 2016, Sir Andrew Wiles was awarded the 2016 Abel Prize, which for kind of to explain what that is, it's kind of like the mathematics equivalent of the Nobel Prize. You can see the puzzle that he solved on the screen behind me. He looks a bit like a mathematician as well, don't you think? The puzzle on the screen behind me is called Fermat's Last Theorem, and Wiles says that he was working on this puzzle since he was a schoolboy. When he started in at college, at university, he thought he'd found a solution to this problem on the board behind me, but he soon worked out that he'd made a big error in his thinking. Anyway, Wiles committed his life, kind of, to solving this problem, and he worked for seven years 
at Princeton University on this problem and nothing else alone. And he only talked to his wife about what he was doing. Can you imagine that? Seven years working on one mathematical puzzle, talking to nobody else about it except what must have been his very understanding wife. (laughs) And then in 1993, in a series of lectures that he gave at Cambridge University, Andrew Wiles, with a blackboard behind him, outlined his theory and his proof as to how to prove Fermat's last theorem. And uh, the crowd erupted into applause when he kind of finally solved this great problem. How did he go about doing it? Well, speaking to the Guardian newspaper in 2016 when he was awarded this great prize, this is what he said. I've got the quote on the screen as well. He said, there were two or three moments and one particular moment right at the end when suddenly I understood how to think about the whole thing and because you've put in all those years of slog, those moments show you the whole vista at once. Isn't that fantastic? Two or three moments of clarity that showed him the whole thing, the whole vista at once. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, I've been telling you about how the book of Romans will will show us these great vistas, these great truths about who God is and our place in God's world. When Andrew Riles was asked about how he felt about solving this centuries-old mathematical problem, he said, it's thrilling. It's the experience we live for, this insight that suddenly everything we now see so clearly that before had been obscure and so frustrating for so long. Now, I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that Fermat's theorem has no particular relevance for our life today, no, no practical implications. It's, it's not saving lives. I don't think it's even building faster computers or anything obscure like that. It's certainly not solving the problem of world peace or anything like that. And yet listen to how excited Wiles is. He says, it's thrilling solving this problem. This is the experience that we live for. I want you to grab hold of Andrew Wiles' enthusiasm for solving a mathematics problem today because today in the book of Romans we see God's solution to a problem. But unlike Fermat's theorem, the problem that God solves is very real and it has very practical implications. In fact, these implications are a matter of life and death into eternity for us today. And that's what Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26 are all about. It's an elegant solution to one of the biggest theological problems of all. Let me explain the problem in a nutshell. How can God make for himself a family of people like you and me who have fallen short of the standard that God requires? See, none of us live perfectly good lives. Sure, we do our best but ultimately we all make mistakes in life. We all do stupid things. We all fall short of God's high standard. The Bible calls this plainly sin. We might not be the worst people in the world, but we're all still affected by sin. And if God is a holy, holy, holy God, how can people come into the presence of a holy God if we're stained by sin? How can we do that? I just want you to understand the depth of this problem. We see this a number of points in our Bibles. Let me show you this from Isaiah. 
Isaiah chapter 6. I'd love you to come there with me because I want you to see the problem. Isaiah chapter 6 you'll find on page 1069 of your Bibles. For those of you who don't know, Isaiah was one of Israel's great prophets. He spoke predominantly to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and he, he spoke during the time of the Assyrian threat where the invasion of their lands seemed to be something that was imminently about to happen. In Isaiah chapter 6, we read about Isaiah seeing a vision of God. He sees God. Let me read to you from verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 6. It says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that is Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you see from Isaiah's vision here the splendor of God? I want you to see his majesty and his size. The Lord is high and exalted, Isaiah says, and the robe of his, his robe fills the temple. We have these seraphim, these amazing heavenly creatures, praising God, and yet they can't gaze on him. Their wings cover their faces. And when they speak of God, this is what they say. Holy, holy, holy. God is three times holy. Holiness is his defining feature. And if that's what God is like, holy, 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 look at the impact that being in his presence has on Isaiah. Let me read on from verse 5. This is what Isaiah says. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Woe to me, says Isaiah. The holiness of God, it it causes Isaiah to say, woe to me. The holiness of God, it's, it's incompatible with Isaiah's sinfulness. The holiness of God, by implication, is incompatible with our sinfulness. If you were with us last week, you might remember Paul going to great length to show us that all of humanity, every single one of us, has fallen short of God's standard. In fact, he winds up his argument in chapter 3 by saying this, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Isaiah... Chapter 6 shows us the holiness of God. Romans 1 to 3, or at least the first part of chapter 3, show us what humanity is like, stained by sin. Can you see the contrast? God is holy. We are sinful. And here's where this becomes a problem. See, God promised right back at the start of the Bible that he was going to create for himself a people, a family, a people he would dwell with. It was a promise that God made right early on in the Bible. I'd love you to see this with me as well. Come back with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. It's right at the start of the Bible, on page 17, right at the start. This is God's promise that he makes to Abram, who will later become Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. 
This is what it says. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Here's God's promise to Abram. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Later in chapter 15, God promises Abraham that the family he creates, well, it'll be as numerous in people as the stars are in the sky. It's God's promise. I will make for you a family. Here's the problem. How can a holy, holy, holy God be part of a family of people if we're all sinful? I mean, imagine seeing your father and having to cry out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Every time you saw your father, you can't live in a relationship like that. Do you see the problem? See the theological dilemma? What is God going to do about it? We might think, well, perhaps God will solve this problem by just turning a blind eye to our sinfulness. Perhaps he'll just ignore our sinfulness. Maybe that's an option. But then where is justice? And if God forgoes his justice, surely that then means that he's kind of letting go of part of his godliness. He becomes no longer a real God. He's no longer demonstrating his righteousness. So that's an impossibility, isn't it? Or maybe God could just give up on his dream of creating a people for himself. Ah, they're all too sinful. Just forget about that dream, God. Forget about that promise. But if God goes back on his promises, then he's no longer a God who keeps his promises. He's no longer acting righteously. So that's an impossibility. God can't break his promises. And so, can you see how we and God are stuck, in a way, between a rock and a hard place? We have a problem with no immediate solution. It's not a problem like Fermat's theorem, though, because there's a lot at stake in this problem. It's a life or death problem. It's an eternity kind of problem. And this is what makes Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, so great. This is why it's called the most important paragraph ever written. Because it sets out a solution to this problem. And it's a thrilling solution. And I want to suggest to you that the deeper you scratch at these words, the more sophisticated you'll see that this solution is. But at its core, here's the answer to the question. Jesus. Jesus is the answer to how a righteous God can make for himself a family from sinful people. Jesus is how the righteousness of God is being revealed in the gospel. Now you might have heard this a thousand times before, or you may never have heard this. This morning, I want you not to just let these words wash over you, because this is great news. Like Andrew Wiles, our mathematician, I want you to be thrilled by the solution that Paul puts before us because these verses explain not just the answer but they dig into it and they show us how God fixes this problem. And it's profound and it's deep and it's real and it's true and I hope for you that these verses are life-changing. So let's work our way through these these five verses. Let's get into it. In, in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, Paul speaks of the gospel making the righteousness of God known. 
You might remember this idea of the righteousness of God as being a, a key idea in the book of Romans. You might remember that Paul uses this phrase back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is his thesis statement for the book as a whole. But I think this word righteousness is confusing in the book of Romans for a number of reasons, but it's confusing partly because it seems to have two meanings. Two meanings in Romans. Firstly, it refers to the the righteous character of God. In other words, that God would be just and fair, but also that he would be faithful and true to his promises. But I think righteousness is also used in this passage as something that God gives to those who trust and believe in Jesus. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, reveals the righteousness of God. Because in Jesus we see how God can be true to his promises while still being God, still being just and merciful, still being opposed to sin and still being honest. It's in Jesus that we will see this being revealed. Do you notice in verse 21 that Jesus is also not just God's plan B? The law and the prophets, in fact, the whole of the Old Testament, they always pointed towards Jesus being God's solution to this problem. It's not a new thing, and it's not God's plan B. And in verse 22, we finally see the solution being revealed. It's named as Jesus. Paul's not talked much about Jesus since the very early parts in this letter. And here we see this idea of the righteousness of God being tied together with some really important other words. Have a look at verse 22 there. You see those words faith and belief in that verse? And Paul will go on in chapter 4 to explain further about what that means. But for now, I just want you to see that the solution to the problem is Jesus and that we're included, or perhaps you could say incorporated into this solution through our faith and our belief in Jesus. I want you to see here also that the righteousness of God is of great benefit for those who believe. For this is the means by which we become part of God's great family. And the gospel is great, isn't it? Because as verse 23 reminds us, we're all in need of it. We're all sinful. None of us deserve to be in part of God's family. Being included, being included is a gift given. So, so far, I hope you've seen the problem. And I hope you've seen that Paul's proposed the solution to that problem. The solution is Jesus. And that solution is applied to us through our faith and belief in Jesus. But Paul still hasn't really explained how it all works. I think that's the question we want to answer now, isn't it? If the solution is Jesus, how does it work? And the answer of the how is shown in verses 24 to 26. Let me read these verses to you. 24 to 26 of Romans chapter 3. It says, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So I want you to see here that we are justified by Jesus, by his action. We are declared righteous 
through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I love the way that this is put in one of the Romans commentaries, the read, mark, learn Roman commentaries. I've got the quote on the screen behind me so you can capture it in its entirety. It speaks about justification and being righteous. It says this, it says, to justify does not mean to let off the hook or to treat as righteous. Rather, it means to declare righteous. It's a legal term meaning that someone is justly acquitted because the penalty for their crime has been paid. Of course, the the payment for our crimes, for our sinfulness, it's not made by humanity, not made by us. It's made by God through Jesus. That's part of the how of the solution. The price to fix the problem was Jesus' own life. For a Jew reading this passage, they would come across this word redemption. I wonder if you saw that there in the passage. And it would remind them, I think, of Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. I wonder if you know the story, if you can remember the story of Israel in Egypt. If you remember that story, God sent some plagues on the land. And at one point, God sends the angel of death to strike down the firstborn males in a household. All the firstborn males were killed unless the blood of a lamb had been painted on the door frames of your house. In that instance, the death of the lamb was the redemptive price, the price paid to release Israel from Egypt. And our rescue as people comes to us freely. It's given, given by grace. It's free to us, yet it comes at a great cost to God. It cost him his only son. Paul goes on to tell us that Jesus' death is an atonement. Atonement, it's another one of those big tricky words in Romans. There's so many of them. Put simply, atonement really just means bringing together two groups that were previously separated. A great way to remember it in the English language is to break the word up into its parts. It says, at one. And in this case, it's people being at one with God. Jesus' death then is the solution because it brings together God and people who were previously separated by sin. And the mechanism for doing it, the cost, is the shedding of Jesus' blood. Jesus is sacrificed and in doing so he averts the wrath, the anger of God. His anger against sin is exhausted and satisfied in Jesus. The wrath that we deserve was instead put on Jesus. Jesus bears that on the cross. It's hard going, isn't it, reading some of this? But I hope you can see in it the how to the solution of the great problem. How will God remain just and righteous in spite of his family being stained by sin? The answer is that God loads up the sins of people onto Jesus, onto his own son. He pours out his righteous judgment and anger on Jesus. I want you to see how extraordinary this is, because here is the solution. Justice is being handed out. God's not bending the rules in any way. He's acting absolutely righteously, and in doing so, he makes a way for us to be part of his family through faith and belief. Our sin cleaned, God's wrath appeased, a solution found. 
If you've been at church for a while, I think um, there's a bit of a danger that these verses will become kind of a bit numb to you, that you'll forget how extraordinary this is by having heard it so many times. I want to remind you, many have called these verses the most important paragraph ever written for people. I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the language, the how of what's going on, that we kind of miss the beauty of what God has done for us. I was talking about this with the staff team earlier in the week, and and Mike reminded me that it's a bit like driving a convertible sports car. I don't know when the last time Mike drove a convertible sports car was. Um, and what Mike said is, when you have a, sport, a convertible sports car, you just want to get out on the road and let the wind blow through your hair. My parents-in-law have got a convertible sports car. It's tiny. And Mike's a very tall man. Ever since he said that, I've had this kind of funny image of Mike's head poking out above the roof of the, or the windscreen of the sports car and the wind just not kind of ruffling his hair but sort of blowing it all away. Here's what you're supposed to do with a sports car, isn't it? You get out on the road and you let it rip. You find a windy road and you drive that thing and you enjoy it. For some of us, though, we might want to pull over on the side of the road and pop the bonnet up on the sports car and have a look to see how the timing belt flows its way through the engine and to check what grade of oil's in it and and all those sorts of things. And that's okay, unless you get bogged down in the mechanism. Don't let what's under the bonnet stop you from enjoying the open road. You know, the nuts and bolts of God's solution to the problem of sin, they're here in Romans, and I think it's good for us sometimes to put a spanner on those nuts and to test them, to work out how it all fits together. But we must still be able to see the big picture of how God has fixed the problem. We must not lose sight of how good God has been to us in what he's done for us with Jesus on the cross. Don't let this just wash over you, but give thanks to God for what he has done. Give thanks to God for what he is like, that he would be righteous, that he would be true to himself and still make a way for us to be part of his family. Perhaps you're here today checking out Jesus for the first time or the first time in a long time. I'm, I'm glad you're here today because you know, these verses, they, they really point towards the core of what it is that we believe as Christians. That we as people were hopelessly lost, that we're all broken, that we all fall short of the glory that God requires. And yet, despite our shortcomings, God has provided a solution. And when we realize that there's nothing that we can do to fix our own predicament before God, well, well how wonderful then. How blessed that God would do something to make us right with him. I want you to remember our mathematician, Andrew Wiles, when he saw the solution to Ferment's theorem, he said it was thrilling. Seeing everything clearly for the first time. I hope today that Paul's words for you are thrilling. If they are, let me encourage you to respond to these words because this passage, it does kind of call for action or call for a response from us. You see, this righteousness, this being at one with God, well, it's applied to those who have faith in Jesus. Faith and belief. Have a look back at verse 22 if you doubt that. Righteousness is given, but it's given to those who have faith and who believe. You might wonder exactly what that means this morning. Well, Paul spells this out clearly later on in the letter 
In chapter 10, verse 9, he says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. If you've seen today the beauty of the gospel, if you've seen it for the first time or the first time in a long time, if this idea of being made right with God is something that is thrilling for you, let me encourage you to think about how you would respond. Perhaps during our next song, you might like to just speak with God very quietly and profess your faith and belief in his son. If that's you, I'd love you to let us know that you've done that today. You might like to just put a little note on the card that's on the side of the leaflet and you can pop that in the box out there. As people, we have a problem, don't we? We all fall short of the glory that God requires. Here's the good news of the gospel. In his great mercy, God has himself solved that problem. He's done it at great cost to himself. Required the sacrificial atoning death of his only son. But that death, it deals with God's righteous anger towards sin. It means that we can be in God's presence. We can be part of his family Not because God's tricking himself or tricking us, but because he has declared us not guilty. He's done that through his grace. I want to pray for us this morning. I'm going to pray using the words that John Calvin wrote in the preface to the French Bible that was translated in 1534. The great words about the truth of the gospel. Let me pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for what we've read today about the truth of the gospel. Because without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we're not Christians. Without the gospel, all riches is poverty, all wisdom folly before you. Strength is weakness, and all the justice of man is under the condemnation of God. But by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, fellow townsmen with the saints, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs with God, with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinner justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and slaves free. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. Amen.